to Ohio versus the world, an American history podcast. Subscribe and follow the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to join the conversation on Facebook or at our website, OhioVTheWorldPodcast.com. Ohio versus the world is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Go to evergreenpodcast.com for all our past episodes. Now here's your host, Alex Hasty. Welcome back to Ohio versus the world. It's our mid-season finale for season 7 and we're covering a topic you might have seen in the news or in your social media feed over the last year, vaccines. No, not that vaccine, but the race for a cure to the polio virus. We'll go inside the terror felt by parents across the country as tens of thousands of children were paralyzed, even killed, by this mysterious illness in the first half of the 20th century. We'll land in the 1950s and tell the story of two vaccines and the legendary rivalry between the scientists, Jonas Salk and Albert Sabin from Cincinnati. A doctor and scientist from the Cincinnati Children's Hospital, no love lost between those two, and clearly the more famous one, Jonas Salk, may not have even been the real winner of the polio vaccine battle, as popular history would suggest. We've got incredible guests on this episode. Four medical and science history experts will walk us through the landmark vaccine of the greatest generation. We'll look at similarities and also a lot of stark differences between the vaccines the American public were worried about in the 1950s and the ones we talk about today. Ohio vs. the World is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Go to evergreenpodcast.com. Check out their dozens dozens of shows. They have an entire history channel. Don't forget to catch up on The Wrath of the Buzzard, the new season from our friends at Profiles. Uh, and, our, and our buddy Vince Tornero, such a cool program that we previewed last month about the rise and fall of a great rock and roll radio station in Cleveland. We've experienced shutdowns in this country, outbreaks in communities, and total confusion about how to stop the spread of a disease that we didn't understand. In 1952 alone, more than 3,000 Americans died from polio, including mostly children, well over 20,000 people, a large majority of which were kids, were paralyzed. Theaters, pools, closed for the summer. The outbreaks would happen in the summer every year, and into the 1950s it was getting worse and worse every year. As the vaccine was being developed and trialed by the subject of today's show, Albert Sabin from Cincinnati and Jonas Salk. We'll tell you the story of the greatest science experiment of the 20th century. So roll up your sleeves. It's episode 6, Ohio versus Vaccines. 1954 was a truly historic year. We had the Brown decision. We had the Army McCarthy hearing. We also had the emergence of Elvis Presley. But all of those stories were overshadowed by the conquest of polio. guest is someone I've seen on TV for the last couple of years discussing the coronavirus pandemic, Dr. Paul Offit, author and pediatrician. He's the director of the Vaccine Education Center at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, professor of vaccinology at the University of Pennsylvania. He also serves on the FDA's Vaccine Advisory Board, helping to make some of these important and difficult decisions about the COVID vaccines. But more importantly for this episode, not to age him, Paul lived through the polio epidemic, and it was pretty bleak. When I was five, um, I was, uh, had an operation on my right foot to, compare a, to repair a congenital abnormality. The, um, the repair was done badly, and as a consequence, I landed in a chronic care facility, Kernan 
Children's Hospital, although at the time it was called Grenan's Hospital for Crippled Children back in the days when you could use words like crippled and feeble to describe children's hospitals. And that was a polio ward. I mean, chronic care facilities in the 1950s were often polio wards. So I remember being in a ward with maybe 20 other children, some of whom were iron lungs, the rest of whom were in traction, um, who were treated with hot pads, which was often terrifying for the children. Um, At the time, in the 1950s, there was only one visiting hour a week, two to three on Sunday afternoons. It's not like we had iPads or therapy dogs or televisions for that matter. So you just pretty much just laid there and stared vacantly. My bed was right next to a window which looked out onto the front door of the hospital. And I just stared out that window waiting for someone to come and rescue me. Mm -hmm. My father was a traveling salesman. He was uh, generally unable to come visit me. My mother was ill with a complication of my pregnancy with my brother. And so I pretty much was unvisited for the six weeks I was there. And what I remember about polio is I just remember a ward full of children who were vulnerable and helpless and alone, much as I was, and uh, it was devastating. Dr. Paul Offit, as we said, serves on the FDA Advisory Board for Vaccines. In his new book, which is our book recommendation for the episode, You Bet Your Life, from 2021, Dr. Offit traces the history of medical innovation and the guarantee of risk involved in every major innovation. It's a fantastic book, but from x-rays to COVID, there's always a risk involved in undergoing these new procedures. There's a link in the show notes to get his book from last year, You Bet Your Life. We asked Dr. Offit what caused him to write this book now. It was COVID that inspired that in part because, um, and it was the manufacturers that did it for me. There has never been a medical innovation in history, whether it's it's biologicals like vaccines or antibiotics or x-rays or uh, any of a variety of, of, of major, major medical breakthroughs that heart transplants, uh, bone marrow transplants, have all been associated with the human price. There's always a price to pay for knowledge, always. And that's been true here with COVID vaccines. I mean, who would have ever anticipated that mRNA vaccines would have caused myocarditis, meaning inflammation of the heart muscle? Who would have ever anticipated that the Johnson Johnson vaccine or the AstraZeneca vaccines, these so-called vectored virus vaccines, would be rare cause of, of blood clots, including serious blood clots of the brain, including occasionally fatal blood clots of the brain. Nobody would have anticipated that. What what I think drove me to write this book was uh, there were several of the, the manufacturers very early on in this process when they'd only done phase one trials, had vaccinated 10 people or 15 people to do dose dosing and dose ranging studies. They started to talk about how they could make millions of doses. And it just rubbed me, rubbed me the wrong way. There was a, an utter lack of humility. Uh, to me, an utter lack of an understanding of the, histor- the history that has taught us that there will be a problem. Once you vaccinate millions of people, there will be a problem. The only question is how severe and how rare. And I thought that lack of humility, frankly, was what drove me to write this book, just to make the point that there has never been a medical innovation that has not been associated with, with a problem. Polio was not a new virus in the 1940s and 50s. It had been around for centuries, but something was causing a large uptick in the infections of the virus known as poliomyelitis, or infantile paralysis as it was known. And also it was a virus infecting people of all walks of life. And if anything, the more affluent, the more likely you were to be stricken. It's almost completely the opposite of how it affected the most numbers and most severe outcomes when compared to COVID. The coronavirus has claimed the elderly in massive numbers among its most at risk. Polio seemed to strike against perfectly healthy children at very young ages. It's terrorizing the parents of America as the 1950s began. When I think about, you know, as a parent now, I mean, it's just crazy to think about how scary that would have been. But what was causing it to be such a problem now? We talk with our next guest, Brandy Scalacci, science historian and author in front of the show, Dr. Randy Sharma, 
about why polio was such a problem in the middle of the 20th century in America and other developed nations. And how did the poliomyelitis virus infect its victims? The answers to those questions were very unclear to most Americans at the time. Was modern society's new cleanliness leading to this outbreak of polio? Sometimes people describe it using what they call the hygiene hypothesis. It's um, it's essentially the idea that improving hygiene, you know, increasing the purity of drinking water uh, actually ends up causing more incidence of disease. And this is how that works. Um, before the 20th century, we we tended to dump our sewage in the same places that we got our water from. This is especially true in Cleveland. Um, so it's before they put the five mile intake you know, out, you were just kind of drinking yuck water. What happens is uh, particularly polio virus is shed in the feces. And so people were picking up small incremental amounts from birth, essentially. So you were building up this kind of exposure tolerance to the disease. And by the time you were you know, a, a, a child of, say, seven or eight years old, you had a kind of systematic ability to fight it off. And uh, you didn't have these kinds of outbreaks. Of course, you start improving the water and then you don't have children getting incremental amounts of this in their system. And so that causes the ep these epidemics to kind of explode. I feel like it's kind of wrong to say that cleaning up the water system caused it. We don't ever want to make it sound like hygiene is bad. <laughs> you know, so the improvement of hygiene saved lives. It didn't cause you know, death, but it does mean that our population was kind of primed. In the late 1800s, as things became more industrialized and people moved into cities, because it's, it's, a, it's a virus that's spread from a fecal oral route. Part where actually kind of counterintuitive is probably start taking off more when children are born, they still have some immunity from their mother. So, you know, they get to six months, they're kind of covered by it. As we progress into the early 1900s, the sanitary system started improving. People and children were not exposed to it uh, quite as much in the same way. That the maternal immunity or from being born kind of weaned off and then they weren't exposed to it. So then you start seeing these kids that were, you know, four years old or older that were actually getting infected. Since it's a, a fecal oral for the most part, so you ingest it, whether you're drinking water or uh, whether you eat something or you just touch something and you get in your mouth. The one thing that Saban figured out, and I think it was, he figured out that it actually would reproduce and in, in the uh, small intestine. And so it'd get into the small intestine and then it could get into the blood. And then, you know, in a small percentage of people, it could affect the uh, spinal cord. And that's where you see the cases of people getting paralysis. But polio was not in the front of Americans' minds in the early 1920s. But quickly, it claimed as a victim the man that would become the most consequential president of the 20th century. Less than a year after losing the 1920 presidential election as Ohioan and Democratic nominee James Cox's running mate, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was paralyzed by polio. Professor of History at Ohio Wesleyan University and author of the Audible exclusive audiobook How 1954 Changed History, it's part of their Great Courses series, Michael Flam joins the program for the first time. He was a fascinating interview and somebody we're going to have to have on the program probably over and over. He's just awesome. But Michael tells us the story of how FDR contracted polio and how this rising star of American politics would change forever the history of philanthropy and the scientific discovery. Franklin Roosevelt becomes the most famous adult victim of polio. And in a sense, he becomes the, the poster child for the campaign to try to eradicate polio. Um, in the summer of 1921, uh, Franklin Roosevelt was a rising young Democratic politician. He had run for vice president the year before. 
He seemingly had a bright future. Um, and uh, in the summer of 1921, he goes on a hike with a group of scouts uh, near his home in Hyde Park. Um, and uh, a photographer takes a picture. It turns out to be the last photo we have of Franklin Roosevelt uh, walking normally and, and naturally using both of his legs. Um, he then uh, sailed up to the uh, family summer estate on Campobello Island uh, off of Maine. And he engaged in a couple of days of intense exercise with his children, did a lot of swimming in the cold water off of Maine, uh, and then woke up uh, that morning uh, with sort of chills and fever, uh, wasn't exactly sure what it was. Doctor assumed it was some kind of flu, uh, but ultimately it became adult onset polio. Uh, Roosevelt suffered para permanent paralysis in his legs and the lower part of his body. Um, he never walked naturally again. Um, uh, for quite a while, he was depressed, really refused to do much of anything. Uh, his wife, Eleanor, eventually persuades him uh, that he can still lead an active life, make a make a real contribution, uh, rejoin the political arena. But it didn't prevent Roosevelt from getting elected to four terms as president. Roosevelt and his law partner, Basil O'Connor, started the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis, what would become known as the March of Dimes. The March of Dimes still exists today. Miss Ohio v. The World, as a neonatal nurse, does work with the March of Dimes, which was originally created to raise funds for polio research and money for families living with polio and the increased cost and care that is needed to provide when you have a polio victim in your family, which thousands and thousands of American families did. Michael Flam, a professor from Ohio Wesleyan, discusses how the relationship between FDR and O'Connor would make the March of Dimes the premier charity in America in the 1940s and 1950s. Tracting adult onset polio gave Franklin Roosevelt the excuse to abandon his law practice, which he had never really enjoyed. <laughs> yeah. um, and he, he built a relationship with another attorney, Basil O'Connor. And after Franklin Roosevelt purchased Warm Springs, which he went to uh, in the hopes that the waters might heal his legs and, and you know, allow him to regain mobility. Um, you know, it's O'Connor who persuades Roosevelt to create the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis and to make sort of um, Warren Springs, Georgia, the headquarters, sort of this partnership, this relationship between Basil O'Connor and then Franklin Roosevelt, who reemerges in democratic politics, that relationship kind of paves the way for the March of Dimes and this public campaign to solve polio. Judy, when I spend a dime on myself or some little luxury like this, I always think about those unfortunate kids and how far just a dime will go toward helping. Gee, Mickey, we don't know how lucky we are and how much we have to be thankful for with our health and our happiness. Can I put a dime in your envelope? Oh, you know that you can. And that's what every good American should do. Join the March of Dimes. Send yours to President Franklin Roosevelt in the White House. That. Yes, Desi. And there are a lot of parents whose children are healthy and happy now, who live in fear. I know I do. The fear, my friends, is polio, infantile paralysis. That was Hollywood stars Judy Garland and Lucille Ball doing spots for the March of Dimes in the 1950s. You'd see those instead of, you know, we watch previews before a movie starts at the theater. They would have these star-studded ad campaigns asking you to contribute to the March of Dimes. Then a collection would go around the theater, people would contribute the change they had in their pockets, 
No other charity did anything like this. Celebrities, FDR, events in every community. My friends in the nonprofit world, this was a small donor plan on steroids. And they were raising millions and millions of dollars. Really changed the game. Michael Flam explains just how the March of Dimes was a success and how it helped to find a cure for polio in only a few short decades. Yeah, the March of Dimes is incredibly influential in a couple of ways. First of all, it, it creates a new model. It sets the template for how um, private philanthropy should operate. In other words, seeking many, many small contributions uh, from interested individuals rather than just focusing on a couple of large contributions from wealthy people. The amount of money that the March of Dimes raises is incredible. Hundreds of millions of dollars, about two thirds of it goes to help families who are caring for someone who has contracted polio. Um, and then about a third of the money that's raised through these largely volunteer operations, these March of Dimes um, events held in communities across the country, about a third goes to research uh, because Basil O'Connor felt it was really important to not only care for the victims, but to hold out hope that through research, eventually we would come up either with a vaccine or a cure for polio. Every summer in your town in the late 1940s and early 1950s, they braced themselves. This was polio season, late spring into summer, and when an outbreak would hit your town, the science was sketchy and often incorrect about how to protect oneself, but shutting everything down was one way many communities dealt with it. Some would go around spraying the entire town with DDT, the now banned and deadly carcinogen. I had no idea that social distancing was implemented during the polio epidemic. Brandy Scalacci, science historian and writer, rejoins us to talk about a hysteria that will feel sadly familiar. They instituted social distancing. They shut down pools and public theaters and, you know, churches and schools and priests got to their congregations talking on local radio. I mean, we think about it as though this is a brand new thing. It wasn't. If anything, the isolation would have been more profound because you don't have social media and Twitter and Netflix. You're not going to you're really isolated. Uh, And then when people did get polio or get some of these other diseases, you weren't just encouraged to stay home. I mean, you were you were made to be quarantined in your house. Big signs would go up in people's windows. It's hard for us to appreciate just how much you would be locked down in situations like this. Brandy talks about the fear of polio when it hit your town. People would drive straight through your city with the windows up if there was an outbreak going on. And we had so much fun with our interview with Brandy Scalacci. She's hilarious and really intelligent and a great writer. And she breaks down the fear of polio in America circa 1950. This is true of all epidemics. When they first hit and you're not exactly sure where they're coming from, the fear is huge because you don't even know what front you're being attacked on. So you're fearful of contagion. You have a sense that it's probably being passed person to person, but you don't know how and in what ways. Is it touch? Is it airborne? Is it waterborne? You know, these were questions we were all asking at the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic. Do you need to wash your groceries before you bring them in. These were questions they were asking too. Um, And hilariously, there were, there were actually motorists who wouldn't even fill up deflated tires for fear that like somehow the air had, I mean, that that's the the level of, of fear that impacted those communities. When in fact it's transmitted in kind of a yucky way. Um, (laughs) It's transmitted primarily via feces because you shed it from your body. Basically it enters your body, you get the virus and it comes out of you that way. So it could also be airborne too, but you think about it, now you've got two vectors. You've got people, um, it's going back into the water system, but it's also being spread through droplets from person to person. And polio took 
up to 20 days to incubate and it remained contagious for several weeks after. So, you know, there was again, um, a long period of time where you didn't have symptoms and no one knew that you were sick. And that's what made this polio in some ways, very similar to COVID. It was a ticking time bomb and people just weren't sure where the threat really was. One of the indelible images of the polio epidemic is what we call the iron lung. Dr. Randy Sharma joins the show again to discuss these breathing apparatus that folks suffering from polio would have to live in. The disease had paralyzed their lung muscles, and without the iron lung, they would not be able to breathe, and, and thus they would die. Listening to interviews with Americans who suffered for months and even years living in these metal prisons, it was something that I had no idea about, and just a really psychologically damaging uh, experience for anyone involved. Family, the person involved, doctors, nurses. And certainly, I had no idea how prevalent it was. Dr. Sharma talks to us about life in the iron lung. We didn't have the machinery or the, the technology to do ventilators like we do now, where you actually put a tube in somebody's, down somebody's throat to get them oxygen and remove the carbon dioxide. So they basically built these, I think the first ones were built in the 1920s, metal cylinders that were sealed at the ends. And at the bottom, there'd be something, the equivalent of like a rubber bladder. The idea was that it would, it would pull down and then it would change the pressure in the chamber. And when it did that, it would expand the lungs. And then when it kind of push back in, the lungs would exhale. So some people that were really unfortunate, they their lungs were, the diaphragm was paralyzed, so they couldn't breathe. So they had to basically make a machine that would cause the lungs to expand and contract. The hospitals would have wards, I mean, just wards of these iron lungs. There were people that would be in there for months and, you know, there there's a story of some, a gentleman in Texas that was relied on that for decades. Into this polio vaccine crusade stepped our two characters for this episode. Jonas Salk, who was funded spectacularly by the March of Dimes at the University of Pittsburgh, and our Ohio connection to the episode, Dr. Albert Sabin of the Cincinnati Children's Hospital, one of and still a leading uh, children's hospital in the country. Both Columbus and Cincinnati have nationally recognized children's hospitals. Michael Flam from Ohio Wesleyan. And again, check out his great courses audiobook on, on again, on audible.com. How 1954 Changed the World, 10 chapters, different stories from 1954, including polio. Really just about how consequential you don't realize 1954 was in America. Professor Flam discusses just who were these two new Americans, first-generation Jewish immigrants from Eastern Europe, Drs. Jonas Salk and Albert Sabin. Both Jonas Salk and Albert Sabin illustrate um, the importance of immigrants in U.S. history. Their story is remarkably similar. They're both Jewish immigrants. Jonas Salk is born in the United States. His father was a Russian Jewish immigrant who came to New York and worked, you know, in the garment industry. Sabin came with his Polish Jewish family. Um, he came to the United States and he was working in the New Jersey textile industry, but quickly demonstrated that he was a very bright young man. He eventually goes to high school and then uh, goes on for a brief time, goes to dental school because he has a family member who's willing to sponsor him. But he eventually decides he's not interested in, in dentistry and he goes on to school, medical school and does scientific research. Both Salk and Sabin are driven, they're motivated, they're bright. Uh, they come from immigrant Jewish families. Both of them attend New York University Medical School because unlike most medical schools, the New York University Medical School doesn't have a quota for Jewish applicants. So bright young Jewish students can go there uh, and pursue their education.
discuss in a little bit, Jonas Salk and Albert Sabin were not friends. They're both leading the drive to, to create a polio vaccine at their Midwestern institutions. Salk in Pittsburgh, at the University of Pittsburgh, and Sabin in Cincinnati. But their main difference was the type of vaccine they were developing. Jonas Salk was moving forward with his trials of his killed virus vaccine. He would grow a bunch of polio and then kill it with a bunch of chemicals, and that was his vaccine. Meanwhile, Sabin was moving forward with a more advanced weakened virus vaccine. He'd take a weakened form of the virus, more like uh, the vaccines we see you know, today and in, in, in the second half of the 20th century, and he'd inject the subject with this weakened form, and the thought is that this polio strain would not make the patient ill or paralyzed, and it would teach an immune response. It was an oral vaccine as well, dropped on a sugar cube instead of a series of three injections like Salk's vaccine. But Sabin's model still was giving the subject the virus, which was scary in the 1950s. It's the main reason anti-vaxxers avoid vaccines is this weakened virus model. Brandy talks to us about the two types of vaccines, Salk's killed and Sabin's weakened type. We have killed versus weakened. Right. right. And a, a killed virus is one that it's dead. You know that you're not going to get polio from it. It's impossible. It's a dead virus. And they send it, they put it into your body with the hopes that your body recognizes it when it sees it again. We've done this before. They kill it with formalin. And then that dead virus is supposed to kind of provide your body with the structure for fighting it off. Alive but attenuated was what they got. Live but weak virus. Yes, it's scarier because you think, oh my gosh, what if the polio virus in there actually is, you know, not weakened enough. And how do you judge that? And for what age groups is it weakened enough? And there's a lot of more questions to ask, and it can be much more complex in order to figure out those gradations and then also to standardize them. But the benefit is you're producing um, a, a very localized immune response in the mucus lining, and you're also building the structure for fighting off future disease. So it had that the other thing is you're not putting a needle in your arm. And of course, needles can be contaminated. Th these things can happen. So yeah. that's, I think, really why it became by far the more used, more recognized, also is on a sugar cube, which who doesn't like that? But in the end, both actually really helped. And because some cases, it just makes sense to fight it on both sides. Salk's research and massive support and public relations help he got from the March of Dimes made him an outcast in the scientific community. A celebrity scientist, that's a new thing. Albert Sabin, for one, didn't care for it. He didn't think Salk's research was the long-term answer. Professor Flam rejoins us to start this discussion of the rivalry between Jonas Salk and Albert Sabin. And you'll hear from Sabin himself talking about his doubts about Salk's killed virus polio vaccine. The rivalry between Jonas Salk and Albert Sabin is legendary. Sabin was a prickly personality. He was a, a difficult person, and he did really see his conflict uh, with Jonas Salk in both professional and personal terms. Uh, now, let me say at the outset, Sabin, by all accounts, is a man of high principle. He cares deeply in science and research. And so part of his critique of Jonas Salk is that his focus on a dead virus vaccine, it won't work. Um, it won't enable people to develop the kind of um, antibodies, the kind of immunities that they need. Sabin reflects the consensus among top scientists, which is that only a live virus vaccine is going to really provide people with the immunity that they need against polio. So there's a sort of professional scientific layer to this rivalry. And then there's a, just a personal element that Sabin is convinced, like quite a few scientists, that, that Jonas Salk 
welcomes the limelight a bit too much, takes too much credit. Saban himself, of course, has an enormous ego and, and he wants to receive credit for everything that he is doing in the lab. So it's it's a personal and professional jealousy or rivalry that I think animates these two men, particularly Saban. I had reason to believe that that did not provide the answer for the ultimate elimination of poliomyelitis. It was a procedure that had to be used. It was the quickest one as soon as it became possible to grow polio virus on a large scale and to formalize it. I mean, this, the technology was available. But it, was, it quickly became evident that uh, both in the field and in experimental studies that it could not influence very well the continuing transmission of poliovirus. And that ultimately, the provision of the kind of immunity that was similar to the natural infection was necessary. I wasn't sure that it was going to work. Brandy Scalacci joins us to talk about the bigger picture surrounding their rivalry. Neither Salk nor Sabin were really beloved in the scientific community. There's a number of reasons for that. She even tells us about arguments the two got into in medical conferences and even in the press. There was a great fear of of immigrants. Many people blamed Italian immigrants for bringing the disease. Um, they did the same thing with with typhoid and other diseases. They would they would choose a people group and suggest that they were to blame. So you partly you have this is he's an immigrant scientist, you know, and so that's not helping uh, his his situation there. I think it's true that when someone is on the inside of you know the in crowd and the out crowd. That happens in science and technology and academics, too. And so Sabin was brilliant, but also very strong headed. And he clashed with Salk early on. And Sabin was eight years. He was the senior to Salk, but he was also somewhat abrasive. Right. So you have that that situation as well, where um, he was very revered and very respected, but he also made a lot of enemies that, you know, that way. So you have two scientists they're both working on this and their vaccines do different things. Every little incremental change forward is also a jockeying for position in this scientific world to have a voice that people will listen to. And we know how important that is because mixed messaging that happened over COVID really turned a lot of people off of the vaccines. So on one hand, it seems petty and it was, it was super petty. <laughs> like they got in, into arguments and, you know, um, Dr. Salk asked a question and, you know, Sabin kind of put him down and th- this, this festered between them. But at the same time, scientific communication is incredibly important and very valuable. And, you know, there are high stakes. So Salk felt like, I think he described it as being kicked in the teeth by Sabin, uh, by Sabin's treatment of him. But in all honesty, they both, both of their vaccines ended up being incredibly important. Salk and Sabin's rivalry continued to grow. Sabin's beef was that Salk wasn't doing anything groundbreaking and that his vaccine was possibly even dangerous to the world. Dr. Paul Offit from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia joins the show to talk about the rivalry, but he's come away with a renewed respect to Dr. Salk's vaccine and says he should have won a Nobel Prize. Sabin was very dismissive of Jonas Salk. He called what Jonas Salk had done, quote unquote, kitchen chemistry. Because yeah, right. in his mind, all Salk had done was took poliovirus, grew it up in, in cells in the laboratory, which was something that had already been done by um by people like uh, John Enders and, and Weller and Robbins in Boston. And then what he did was he purified it, which was certainly not a novel technology, and then he inactivated it with a chemical which had already been done for the influenza vaccine. So in his mind, Sabin's mind, there was nothing novel about this. Uh, Sabin's idea was to take a virus and weaken it 
by growing it in cells in the laboratory in much the same way that, that the yellow fever vaccine was made before him and the measles, mumps, German measles and rotaviruses vaccines have been made after him. I think Salk was underrated. What he showed that was novel at the time was that you could take a virus completely inactivated with a chemical, so whole killed virus, and you could induce long-lived immunological memory where you could be protected for the rest of your life. At the time, no one thought that was true. They thought the only thing that, that could induce long-lived memory would have been either being naturally infected, which obviously comes with a price, or with being uh, um, vaccinated with Sabin's vaccine, which was a live weakened form of the virus that would induce so-called convalescent immunity. No, people thought that with Salk's vaccine, you would need to constantly boost throughout a lifetime, but that wasn't true. Salk showed that you could get a memory response with an inactivated vaccine. He was the first to show that. And for that, I think arguably he could have won the Nobel Prize, but he was, not only did he not win the Nobel Prize, he wasn't even elected to the National Academy of Sciences, which I think was unfair. same time that Salk was launching his nationwide trials, Sabin was just beginning his live human testing of his weakened virus vaccine. Getting human subjects for a disease that can cripple and kill you wasn't easy. He would ultimately do his biggest trials in the Soviet Union, but he began by driving across the southern half of the state of Ohio on U.S. Route 50 in a snowstorm to the city of Chillicothe. Dr. Randy Sharma tells us about those first trials of the Sabin vaccine in Chillicothe, Ohio, and you'll hear from Dr. Sabin himself in describing how he was able to get test subjects to his oral vaccine. Sabin was of the belief that a weakened live virus would be better. He actually tested it on his family. In 1955, was he uh, talked to the warden at the Chillicothe prison, was able to get prisoners to take the oral vaccination, offer them $25 and I think some, some days off of their sentences. <laughs> there was a Russian delegate that came to to the US. And so he kind of hit it off with one of these investigators. And so then he was able to get the, uh, the Russians were interested in it. And so the bigger tests, the bigger studies were done in 1959 in, in Russia. It's Chillicothe, Ohio, January 54, it was to ask for volunteers in this federal prison where there were mostly young people. And I took my life in my own hands. The roads between Cincinnati and Chillicothe were icy. And I thought I was, I was going to go off the road or something at any moment. But when I arrived at the prison, the warden, it was up to him to decide whether he was going to let me interfere with his routine, said I had my mind made up that I would say no to you. But when I saw you arriving here in this horrible weather, I decided to go and give you a chance and talk to the men directly. And when I did... And I had to explain to them the possible hazards that I could not measure or describe to them, to those who didn't have any immunity polio. I, it came to my mind that the chance, the risk I took of driving there to ask them was much greater than any risk unknown, unpredictable. You told them that? Yes, I told them that. In a world infatuated with comic fandom comes a show to help us remember the talents that have inspired us. Whoa, 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 cut. Oh, come on. It wasn't come that on. bad. It's a bit dramatic. Let's just tell them about the show, guys. We are the Canned Air Podcast. Join us weekly for a comedic trip through pop culture. We also welcome some cool comic creators, as well as some of the voice and screen actors that help shape your childhood. Find us on cannedairpodcast.com and on the Evergreen Podcast Network.
1954, Salk's vaccine was trialed as over 600,000 children got shot to the killed virus vaccine. Our guest Michael Flam and many others called the greatest public health experiment in the country's history. The testing results were positive, but nobody knew if it would work. Yet parents are lining up their kids in droves at their schools and elsewhere to get their kid inoculated. Why? There are people like the famous radio commentator Walter Winchell at the time who sounded the alarm that the vaccine may be dangerous. But they were drowned out by the overwhelming number of willing subjects for the Salk vaccine in 1954. Michael Flam from Ohio Wesleyan University breaks it down for us. Polio crusade of 1954 was the biggest public health experiment in U.S. history to date. Um, more than a million people ultimately participate. You have about 600,000 children who sign up for a series of three vaccinations, three shots. Um, and then you've got more than 300,000 anxious parents, school officials, public health officials, you know, and, and just simply volunteer. So you, you have almost a million or more than a million people who are participating. Why do so many parents agree to let their children participate in this, this great experiment? Let's remember that no one knew for certain that the soft vaccine was safe or effective. It had been triple tested. Jonas Salk had tested the vaccine on himself and his own children. But the idea that this was going to be safe and effective, it was not clear. One of the biggest factors is simply the fear that many parents, especially middle class parents, had in the 1950s that polio might strike anyone at any time, particularly in the summer months. Middle class um, boys seemed especially vulnerable. I mean, this was a terrifying possibility. You know, typically, um, if somebody contracted polio, the symptoms weren't that bad, but for about 1% could suffer temporary or permanent paralysis and even death. And it seemed to strike randomly, unpredictably, and it especially seemed to hit the middle class. And so there's a huge amount of fear um, on the part of middle class parents that they've done everything they can to provide for their children, protect their children. And yet there's this silent, deadly threat out there and, and they want to do something about it. The great polio vaccine experiment of 1954 was underway, but Jonas Salk had some reservations about how it was being conducted. They were not all given the polio vaccine. In fact, 200,000 of the kids were given a placebo. He fought this, but ultimately relented as it was determined that a control group would be needed. Schools were filled with students by the hundred. Shots were given in the arm, three shots total over a few months, and each child's info was tracked. So you possibly know now that the vaccine program was a success. The findings were revealed to the public at a press conference at the University of Michigan with Dr. Thomas Francis, who led the study. They made this announcement on April 12, 1955. We'll hear from Dr. Paul Offit about this monumental public health breakthrough, and Michael Flam will share the significance of the date chosen to make this announcement. Salk's vaccine worked. Right, so Jonas Salk made his polio vaccine by taking polio virus, growing it up in, in cells in the laboratory, purifying it, and then killing it with a chemical. So it was a whole killed virus. That was yeah. his vaccine. He tested it in 700 children in the Pittsburgh area. He found that he induced an excellent immune response that he believed would be protective and that the vaccine appeared to be safe. 
That was enough for him. He went home to his wife, Donna, that night and said, Eureka, I've got it. He didn't want to do a trial. He didn't want to give thousands of children in the 1950s a placebo shot consisting only of salt water. But nonetheless, it was insisted by the March of Dimes that that happened. So it was a so-called Francis Field trial. 420,000 children were inoculated with Jonas Salk's vaccine. 200,000 were inoculated with placebo. And when it was over, Thomas Francis, who headed that trial, stood up at Rackham Hall in in the University of Michigan and and said those three famous words, safe, potent, effective. So how did he know it was effective? He knew it was was effective because 16 children died from polio in that study, all in the placebo group. He knew it was effective because 36 children uh, were paralyzed in that study, 34 in the placebo group. I remember my mother crying when that vaccine was declared safe, potent, and effective. But the fact is there was an enormous price to pay. Um, And... You know, those children were uh, could have lived long and productive lives. I, too, was a first and second grader in the 1950s. But for the flip of a coin, those children could have lived the same life I lived. Franklin Roosevelt died in April 1945. He had a massive stroke, a massive heart attack. But it's no coincidence that it is exactly a decade later, in April 1955, Uh, that Dr. Thomas Francis announces at the University of Michigan that the Salk vaccine is a success. It's safe and and it's effective. They had tested it for more than a year. They had done double blind tests. And Dr. Thomas Francis at the University of Michigan with a team of research, they announced to the nation that the Salk vaccine is safe. And they hold a press conference on the day a decade earlier that Franklin Roosevelt had died. And so in, in that sense, the story of Franklin Roosevelt is connected yet again to the story of Jonas Salk and the, uh, the polio vaccine. A major medical hurdle was crossed with the discovery by Dr. Jonas Salk of the anti-polio vaccine, which was to spread a mantle of protection over millions of American children. And the scientists entered the ranks of the medical immortals. Leading drug firms shifted into high gear to meet a national demand which spread to every crossroads despite early controversy. Each hastily set up center became a mecca for anxious parents shepherding little Johnny and little Jill to their inoculations. They're protected and it didn't hurt a bit. The effort to get this vaccine out was not like the COVID vaccine rollout last year. There was very little governmental involvement in the polio rollout. This was during the height of the second Red Scare McCarthyism, which we covered in last season's episode about the anti-communist senator from Wisconsin. Any serious government involvement would have looked too much like socialized medicine. This is something still fought by one of the two major parties today. Back in the 1950s, anything looking like the Soviet Union was a non-starter. But as Michael Flam told us, the pharmaceutical companies also did not want government involvement. The government plays a relatively small part in this story, this rollout of the polio vaccine. Um, You do have the government checking the vaccines to see whether they're safe, that the vaccines, in fact, are triple checked and the government is part of that triple check process. But on the whole, um, the U.S. government does not play a direct role. Unlike in Canada, for example, um, where the government really did play a major role. Part of the reason is that during the Cold War, many Americans were skeptical or suspicious of government involvement in their lives or in the economy. And that's 
that's been part of America's DNA almost from the start, a real sort of skepticism of big government and an embrace of, of small government. Um, it's also true that the pharmaceutical industry actively resisted any intervention by the government. The pharmaceutical industry was was very firm on this point. They would produce the vaccines. They would be entitled to earn a reasonable profit from it. And, uh, and that, in turn, would fund future research and create incentives for the pharmaceutical industry you know, to, to do other research and try to find other cures for other diseases. And, and, you know, this point was sort of stressed over and over again. And yes, you're absolutely correct. Very few people want the United States to become like the Soviet Union, especially during the Cold War. So that is a big fact. But you also, you have a lot of, uh, of uh, corporate pushback against the government assuming too large a role in this effort to eradicate polio. The lack of government involvement would have some negative effects later on, which we'll discuss. But first, there's another little Ohio connection to the polio crusade, and that's the actual strain of polio used in Salk's historic vaccine. The polio virus that was being killed in Salk's vaccine was known as the Mahoney strain. The extremely virulent strain came from three sons in the Mahoney family from Akron in the 1940s. It was controversial in the scientific community to use the Mahoney strain in Salk's vaccine, but he thought it was the correct move to use the more virulent variant from the Mahoney's in Akron. Dr. Paul Offit talks to us about this Mahoney strain. He was criticized for that choice. His thinking was this is is particularly dangerous strain. In other words, it was unusual in that typically if you took polio virus and you inoculated it into the the muscles uh, of, say, experimental animals, it wouldn't then travel to the brain and cause polio. But this this virus did. And uh, it was highly transmissible and highly dangerous. He thought that, that this is the perfect strain to use because if there's even, if, when you try and inactivate it, unless you completely fully inactivate it, then you're going to really see that you didn't inactivate it when you inject it into experimental animals. But, but that, that became a problem when um, five companies stepped forward to make the vaccine. Uh, because it was one of the companies, Cutter Laboratories of Berkeley, California, failed to fully inactivate the virus. And the virus that they failed to inactivate largely was this Mahoney strain. As we said, there's little government involvement in Salk's vaccine development. They were part of the testing, but not like we see today. Our guest Paul Offit wrote a book in 2007 about a very tragic chapter of this polio triumph. It's known as the Cutter Incident. Cutter Laboratories, based out of Berkeley, California, they were one of the manufacturers of Salk's vaccine meaning they were responsible for using the chemicals to kill the Mahoney strain before injecting it into arms. The reporting requirements were so weak that Cutter Labs was able to just share with the government their successful batches, and and they didn't share with the government agencies that quite a few times they were unable to properly kill the virus, yet they still sent Salk vaccine into the arms of unsuspecting American children. As we said, Dr. Offit wrote the definitive book on this subject back in 2007, And in his book from last fall, You Bet Your Life, he discusses the Cutter incident in more detail. There's a link in the show notes to buy that new book. It so clearly lays out that all medical innovations come at a human price. It's just a fact. So when we hear about some of these things coming out of the COVID vaccine, if you thought it was going to be completely smooth and and seamless, then then you you were wrong. And you don't know your history. We asked Paul about the Cutter incident just weeks after the announcement of the successful SALK trials. There were about uh, 120,000 children that were inoculated inadvertently in the mid, mid-1950s with live, fully dangerous uh, polio virus. About 40,000 developed abortive or short-lived polio. 164 were permanently paralyzed and 10 were killed. It was probably the worst biological disaster in America's history. It really started, in many ways, a man-made polio epidemic. 
Other companies also had a problem. Wyeth Laboratories also made a vaccine that paralyzed and killed a small number of children. And it, it, we, it took us two months to figure out how to adequately inactivate that virus, adequately scale up that vaccine for, for mass production. It was a painful lesson, a, a lesson most people don't remember. As Surgeon General of the Public Health Service, I recommended the day before yesterday that vaccination programs against poliomyelitis be temporarily postponed. That clip was of the U.S. Surgeon General who shut down the vaccine programs across this country just before the summer of 1955. That was polio season. Just as millions of families were prepared to get their kids vaccinated, the program was stopped. Now the government was going to get involved in vaccine regulation more in depth. Dr. Paul Offit talks about some of the changes in government regulation following the tragic Cutter incident. Right, so this was April 1955. At the time, you could say generously that vaccine regulation was in its infancy. There were only 10 people who, quote-unquote, regulated vaccines. They, they actually did research in often other things, and this was sort of a sidelight. When Cutter happened, um, it was really the birth of vaccine regulation in the United States. Um, we, uh, it was the birth of something called the Division of Biologic Standards, and very quickly it wasn't 10 people that were regulating vaccines, it was 150. And it was a much more stringent process. When you think about the length of time that it took to license Jonas Salk's polio vaccine in April 1955, it was two and a half hours. That is not true today. The average length of time it takes to license a product is about uh, 10 months. With COVID exceptionalism, because we're in the midst of a pandemic, pandemic, um, it can be as short as, as uh, several months, but it's uh, it, no short. It's my very pleasant duty to report to you the results of polio vaccinations to date. We can all be proud of the soft vaccine brought about by American scientists and American giving. For maximum protection from paralytic polio, three inoculations. The second given not less than two weeks after the first. The third not less than seven months later. Your child or any member of your family eligible for polio vaccine in your community should be vaccinated now. The Surgeon General restarted the vaccine program after just a few weeks after the problem with Cutter Labs was identified. This type of disaster was exactly what Sabin was warning against. The challenges of scaling up the Salk vaccine to worldwide distribution is too subject to mistakes and thus, you know, possibly dangerous outcomes. But what my research and books like Dr. Paul Offit's book opened my eyes to was just how eager the public was to get their kids vaccinated. Especially today, when you see all these millions of Americans refusing to get this very successful COVID vaccine, even after Cutter in 1955, they lined up their kids by the millions to get the Salk vaccine. Brandon Scalacci, a science historian and author from Cleveland, talks to us about how messaging with polio was effective. The messaging from the government, the messaging from the March of Dimes, and also why the difference in the diseases, polio and COVID, could lead to such a stark difference in vaccine hesitancy in that 65 years between the vaccines. If anything, people in the 50s should have been terrified of the polio vaccine, especially after Cutter. The science just wasn't there yet, like it, like we have now. The government oversight, as Paul Offit described to us, wasn't there either. Yet here they were. The children of America just kept rolling up their sleeves. It wasn't that there was no vaccine hesitancy. There was. There was even vaccine hesitancy to smallpox. Um, quite, quite a lot of it, actually. So it's not that there wasn't hesitancy, but there was a much more concerted effort to overcome hesitancy early on and very systematic, very consistent messaging. So... 
I'm a science communicator. I'm a, I'm a science writer and I'm a science communicator. For me, I recognize the value of that, that having a consistent message that you are not prevaricating. You're saying, this is what we know, and you're not releasing the information until you know it. And you know, you're keeping control of that message is really important. If all the messaging is consistent, you don't have people going, well, wait a minute, you said this last week. And there's, you know, there's something to that. The other point I think is the type of disease this is. So we go back to COVID. You have COVID. Someone's sick with COVID. They've been with sick with COVID. Now they're better. Can you tell? Can you just see somebody on the street and go, that person's had COVID? Maybe not. But things like smallpox, which left you disfigured, or polio, which left you paralyzed and disfigured in some way, um, or you know, you might have to have crutches, or you might be paralyzed. You might have to live inside uh, pressure chambers. Obviously, that's very visual to people. That's that's before the disease. This is after the disease. It's almost more impacting than the numbers of deaths because people are seeing the long-term effects and they're extremely visible and they're visceral and it's a it's a big impact factor. So I think that's one. You're looking at a child who's on crutches and you think, not my child. You know, obviously uh, people have died from COVID, but you're not seeing them. You're not, you know, you're not noticing that necessarily if you're just a parent walking around with your children in the street. Whereas if you were walking around and you saw a bunch of children on crutches because they'd gotten polio, that has a very different kind of effect. People had seen polio every summer. It just kept coming back and they didn't want their children to be the one. So we had COVID and we got a vaccine within a relatively short period of time. These were people fighting outbreaks of polio over years, wishing there was a vaccine, not knowing what to do. Messaging, as Brandy discussed, was so important in the success of the polio vaccine rollout and one of the shortcomings, clearly, of the still successful COVID vaccine rollout. I know 30% of the country won't take the vaccine. There's still a lot to be proud of in the vaccine rollout here logistically. But it was a top-down federal model. It took a minute to get started. And the Eisenhower administration in the 50s was just in no position to take that kind of approach. Brandy compares the almost community-based grassroots approach of the polio vaccine to the COVID messaging rollout we just lived with. I like using Cleveland as a case study. I live here, but also yeah. I like Cleveland as a case study. We we broke records for the n- amount of people vaccinated in the shortest period of time. And I like to tell the story. I used to work at the district museum and I used to tell this story quite a lot. It was because there was cooperation between really important groups. Okay. And it wasn't just top down. You had people from radio and media, you had uh, local celebrities, you had schools, you had teachers, you had parents, you had the scientists and doctors, you had philanthropists and all of these. And there was quite a lot of philanthropy in Cleveland at the time. Uh, You had all of these forces coming together to support a single cause. So everywhere you looked, you were going to see positive information about you should get this vaccine, you should get this vaccine. So first you create this ground cell of we definitely want this which helps. And then you have to figure out how you're going to actually get these shots into arms. And uh, partly a lot of this was funded by the March of Dimes. Well, we, we call it the March of Dimes now, and it was called the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis. And yeah. so grants were basically funding a lot of these, a lot of these things. Um, and the public was, like I said, the public was really, really invested. The Eisenhower administration was simply just not prepared. They just weren't prepared for this. They couldn't possibly have overseen this solely from the federal level. And that's why I loved the the communal spirit of the polio vaccine drive because it was people like you and me as much as it was, you know, presidents and vice presidents and congresspeople. And 
in reality, I feel as though that's really what we what we need to lean on for the future is that everyone needs to be involved because you know you can't get this done. You simply can't procure you know nine million shots without everybody working together. So it was pretty much a miracle. One of the issues that we faced with COVID is that there was almost too much reliance, I think, on a top-down model. Sabin's vaccine is still being tested as Salk's vaccine begins to inoculate the country. Sabin's not able to get the kind of large-scale testing in the U.S. with the Salk vaccine becoming readily available. Why would you take a test vaccine, even if it's supposedly better or more effective, if there's already a, a very good one that exists? He's forced to look outside our borders and finds a home for his massive vaccine test in the Soviet Union. It's a controversial move in the American science community. After all, they're our mortal enemy during the Cold War. But Sabin moves forward and vaccinates millions of Russians and Eastern Europeans. Brandy talks with us about Sabin's tests of his oral polio vaccine. Sabin's vaccine, it was tested from 1957 to 1959, and it was uh, in, in the USSR. It involved like millions of children. The positive results were reviewed in the United States and they were looked at with like a little bit of skepticism, but the World Health Organization said, no, let's let's go on to large scale trials. Today, it's amazing how strict the controls are. Nobody gets a vaccine. Everybody watches every step of the way. But that wasn't necessarily the case back then. In fact, we were just developing those those processes. So you figure you're having process that is not necessarily got exactly perfect standardized oversight. You're testing it on people's children and not necessarily, you've kind of gone elsewhere to test it and then bring it back and and check those results. There's a lot of ways that that feels icky. But at the same time, this was killing children. It was paralyzing children and people were surprisingly willing to take those risks. Albert Sabin of Cincinnati's tests are a success, and he brings the vaccine back to the States and back to Ohio. He started what he called Sabin Sundays in Cincinnati, which tens of thousands of school-aged children would take the oral vaccine. If you look at our cover for this episode, it's a picture of Sabin administering that cherry syrup vaccine. Kids would go to the sites on Sundays, take the Sabin vaccine, as the hometown hero doctor tried to completely eradicate polio from the Queen City. Dr. Randy Sharma rejoins the show to talk about Sabin bringing the vaccine to Cincinnati. And we'll hear from Dr. Sabin himself talking about this program in 1960. So in 1960, Sabin was actually able to do what they called Sabin Sunday. And for about a week at the end of April in 1960, they, they were able to administer it to children in Cincinnati. And that was the oral vaccination they gave with some cherry syrup. What he wanted to do was, was see if he could actually eradicate from the city. Uh, and, and he actually was able to do that from hundreds of volunteers at Chillicothe, then to my own children and the neighbors here in Cincinnati. And then it was necessary to go from tens to hundreds to thousands, and all that was done during a period leading up to about 1957. And by then it was necessary to go on a larger scale. It was not easy in this country because the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis didn't want anything to interfere with a drive to get as many children vaccinated with salt vaccine as possible. Some of the initial big tests were actually carried out in Cincinnati. We had here a situation in 1959, oh, it was 1960, where we had one of the first really large tests in the country where all the school children of Cincinnati received the vaccine. 
1961, the United States is seeing the benefits of a polio vaccine program centered around Albert Sabin's sugar cube model. It was not just more appealing to children, but involved less infrastructure and manpower, and was a more effective vaccine. Dr. Paul Offit talks to us about how the vaccine Sabin made replaces the Salk vaccine around the country and ultimately around the world. The advantage of, of Sabin's vaccine was it could be given by mouth. So, though the, in, in, you know, we learned as a child of the 50s, it could just be dropped onto sugar cubes, which was fun for us in the 1950s. <laughs> we could actually take a sugar cube as a vaccine. Um, and, and so it was very easy to give. It didn't require the level of paramedical personnel support to give that vaccine. And it induced something called contact immunity, uh, which is to say that if you vaccinated someone in the home because the virus, that vaccine virus would then be excreted in the stools, about 25% of people in the home, assuming they'd never been exposed to the virus before, would themselves be vaccinated from that child who would be excreting the virus. So there was that advantage as well. A massive assault on polio gets underway in Texas as 10 counties aim to reach a million and a half people with doses of the Sabin oral vaccine. A concerted campaign brings long lines of people to school centers on the first day to the delight of authorities. It was recommended that even those who had already taken the three-shot Salk vaccine receive the oral doses, doses that are taken painlessly on a lump of sugar. It's a striking display of community cooperation. One hundred million Americans of all ages had received the oral vaccine, and this had, on Sundays, and this had produced a remarkable effect, which led really to the first eradication of polio. This also had an impact on countries. Actually, other countries did it before, because in Japan it happened in 1961 when they had a big epidemic six months after they had given killed virus vaccine to 13 million children, and they had to give the oral vaccine to stop the epidemic, and they continued. And the same thing happened in European countries, etc. You hear Sabin, even in victory, denouncing the Salk vaccine and problems that it experienced in its early years abroad. But in the year 2000, Sabin's vaccine was actually replaced by the Salk vaccine by the CDC in the U.S. Although Albert Sabin and his vaccine ultimately cured the world of polio, we talked to both Michael Flam and Dr. Paul Offit about why Salk's vaccine makes a comeback in the 21st century. In the race to, to eradicate polio worldwide, Albert Sabin is ultimately the winner. And the reason that he is the winner is that he develops an oral vaccine. Uh, it doesn't require a shot. It can be administered safely and easily. Um, it's also relatively inexpensive and simple to produce. So simply based on those criteria and simply based on the number of people who are eventually vaccinated against polio worldwide, Sabin is the winner. In 1961, um, the Centers for Disease Control decide that uh, subjecting children to a series of shots, which is what the Salk vaccine required, it's no longer necessary. And so they also switch to the Sabin oral vaccine. And that eradicates virtually all polio in the United States. But every year, the Sabin vaccine, which contains a live virus, which actually stimulates a natural infection, a small natural infection um, in the body, that Sabin vaccine is responsible for a number of cases of polio, a small number, 
but a number of cases. And so then ultimately the decision is made here in the United States to go back to the Salk vaccine in order to knock out polio entirely and completely. So credit for the absolute final eradication of polio here in the United States has to go to Jonas Salk. But worldwide, the winner of this competition, this race to cure polio is Albert Sabin. The problem was it had a side effect which was uh, significant, and that was that it itself could cause paralytic polio, so-called vaccine-associated paralytic polio. It was rare. It occurred maybe one per 2.4 million doses, but it was real. And it's ultimately why Jonas Salk's vaccine replaced Albert Sabin's vaccine um, by the year 2000. Dr. Sabin, would you say that polio has been virtually eliminated from this country as a result of the use of uh, your vaccine? I think the answer is yes, but it must be qualified that unless the oncoming generations of children are vaccinated with all vaccine on a much larger scale than they are now, it will come back because there are still many millions and millions of people who are not protected against polio and the viruses could start spreading and circulating again. So we must be on the alert. Albert Sabin's words of warning seem to be even more prescient today as the anti-vax movement continues to stupidly gain steam. That being said, polio is almost entirely eradicated from the world. No more iron lungs, no more lifetimes of paralysis. Sabin and Salk saved the world from the scourge of poliomyelitis. Dr. Randy Sharma joins us one last time to discuss a polio-free world while issuing a similar warning to that of Albert Sabin. You know, we hadn't seen a case of polio in the U.S. since 1979. Every once in a while, you'll see a case pop up in Pakistan and Afghanistan. I think it's more people are hesitant to do it because of misinformation from their religious leaders. But we're almost polio-free. Since there are more anti-vaxxers and people are trying to, you know, not get their kids vaccinated, you do run that risk, they could, they could reemerge. Albert Sabin would die in 1993 at the age of 86. And Salk would die two years later. I asked Paul Offit, the author of the great new book on the risks of medical innovations, his book, You Bet Your Life, which came out last year. And we asked him about his role on the FDA Vaccine Advisory Board, the board that puts out these new clearances for, for COVID vaccines. We asked him about vaccine hesitancy and skepticism in the large portions of this country. What can be done to alleviate some of the skepticism about vaccines? It's nice to call it skepticism. I, I, I think that, that I would argue uh, I'm a skeptic. I mean, I'm on the FDA's Vaccine Advisory Committee. I think everybody that sits around that table that makes a decision about this vaccine, and we made the decision in December of 2020 to, to approve the use of Pfizer's vaccine and Moderna's mRNA vaccines, uh, we're all skeptical, uh, which is to say, show me the data. Show me the data that, that's, that proves that this vaccine is safe and effective, at least to the degree that it's been tested. I think the problem is not so much skepticism with the at least 30% of the public that consistently refuses to get a COVID vaccine as cynicism. Yeah. They just don't trust the system. They don't trust the government. They don't trust the medical community. They don't trust the pharmaceutical companies. And so I think it's not so much a deficit of knowledge that's going to uh, convince them as much as a deficit of trust. And it's a matter of trying to find a way to get 
certain people or groups to trust you. Uh, we have the, there's a physician in Philadelphia named Ayla Stanford, who basically formed something called the Black Doctors COVID Coalition, where she she got a couple hundred other doctors like her to go out into the North Philadelphia community and vaccinate 50,000 uh, people who were hesitant to get vaccines by sitting in their living room and ta- answering their questions. And if they still chose not to get a vaccine, then she came back again. And so I think it is a matter of trust. And that's it's much harder to solve that problem than to solve a deficit of information problem. As we close today, we're joined once again by Michael Flam, professor of history at Ohio Wesleyan University, to discuss the differences in vaccine hesitancy when looking at COVID and looking at this polio crusade. I always thought the name Operation Warp Speed under the Trump administration's commendable efforts to get a vaccine to market as quick as possible to stop the pandemic. I always thought that name was kind of a negative to vaccine hesitant Americans. I didn't think they wanted their vaccines at warp speed. They wanted them to be vetted by scientists for years, I guess, by people like our guest Paul Offit, and to come at all deliberate speed, maybe not warp speed. But Michael Flam looks at the differences and incorporates the generational divides between the current generation and the greatest generation, quote unquote, that endured the polio epidemic and a lot more. I think there's a number of reasons for why uh, Americans in general and parents in particular were more willing to participate in, in, in this crusade, the greatest public health experiment in U.S. history. Most Americans had faith in government. They had, had witnessed the U.S. government help them during the Great Depression, and they had witnessed the U.S. government lead the effort to win World War II. I also think most Americans in the 1950s still had a great deal of faith in science and in doctors. There was much less skepticism of the pharmaceutical industry. Um, and then I think finally, um, in the 1950s, because of this country's shared experience in overcoming the Great Depression, helping to win World War II, uh, there was a belief in the idea that you should sacrifice for the common good, that you had an obligation to do something for your neighbors, your community, and your nation. I think since the 1960s and 1970s in the United States, we've had much more focus on individual rights and freedom, and, uh, and that's all quite good. But we have paid a price, and that is that we have seen an erosion in the sense of what do we owe our society, our friends, our neighbors, our community, our country. You know, what is our communal or collective obligation to others? And I think today that, that sense of communal or collective obligation has eroded, and it's certainly less than what existed in the 1950s. From Garfield's tomb to the serpent mound, from the big cities to the river towns, first in flight making history, there's so many books you need to see, I like reading, and I like reading. Tippecanoe and Tyler too From the Queen City to Lake Erie Blue Edison and a man on the moon So many books, which will we choose? I like reading I like reading Our book recommendations for today are First, You Bet Your Life by our guest Dr. Paul Offit. Dr. Offit's responsible for developing a vaccine for rotavirus in his career, among many other distinctions. There's a link in the show notes to buy You Bet Your Life. I, I highly recommend it. 
Our other recommendation is an Ohio story of sorts. It's Brandy Scalacci's new book from Simons & Schuster in 2021 called Mr. Humble and Dr. Butcher. Brandy takes us into the Cold War medical arms race and focuses on the story of Cleveland, Ohio, neuroscientist Robert White, a little-known story, a kind of Jekyll and Hyde situation, hence the title. Such an interesting read. We asked Brandy for the 30-second preview of Mr. Humble and Dr. Butcher, a great Ohio history book. I tend to operate at this interesting interstices of uh, science and macabre and tech and goth and steampunk and stuff. Um, In fact, I'm the host of the Peculiar Book Club, which is a twice monthly YouTube show and it's live stream. We have best-selling authors come on who also write books like this. I was like, there's got to be others like me. And it turns out there's a whole bunch. So uh, so we bring people in for that. This book was really interesting. And I, I sometimes wonder if I, if I, if we should have had a different title, because you're right, it's very much a Cold War story about this race to transplant organs. But in the middle of that story, one guy decides to transplant heads. <laughs> and that's, that's kind of a, that's a big, that's a step, right? That's not exactly, that's like hearts, lungs, kidneys, heads. Thanks so much to Brandy for joining us. You can follow her on Twitter at bscalacci, that's B-S-C-H-I-L-L-A-C-E, or her website, brandyscalacci.com. Check out her very fun show with great guests called The Peculiar Book Club. A special thanks to Dr. Paul Offit for joining us from Philadelphia with his busy schedule. Check out his new book, You Bet Your Life. Uh, there's a link in the show notes to buy that. A really interesting book from, from last year. Professor Michael Flam from the Great Ohio Wesleyan University. Don't forget to download his Audible.com exclusive Great Courses audiobook called How 1954 Changed the World. Amazing chapters about polio about the controversial American-led coup in Guatemala, as well as the birth of rock and roll, Brown versus the Board of Education. Uh, Really awesome uh, to have him on and somebody that we're definitely going to have on again. Lastly, thanks to our friend and and the great Dr. Randy Sharma, based here in Columbus, for dropping some of his knowledge on us as well. That's the mid-season finale. It's a lot of stuff that we had to learn. I'm not a virologist. I'm not a scientist. I'm terrible at science, so I'm sure I screwed a few things up for you. Science nerds out there, uh, if you want to email me and call me out on it, just save it. I mean, this is the same guy who in a show in 2020 said the coronavirus is not going to kill as many people as as the great influenza here in America. We just passed one million dead. So don't look for me for your science advice, but I really did put a lot of work into this one. Such an interesting story about the polio vaccine and its connections here to Ohio. We're back in three or four weeks. It's the mid-season finale and we got a vacation in there. I think all this polio research bought us a little time. Uh, some great new shows we're working on, and like I said, we got a whole other half of this season to come. Don't forget to rate and review the show, and most importantly, just share it with your friends, your next backyard barbecue around the water cooler. That's the best way to help the show is to let others know about how awesome Ohio versus the world is. You can email us with your show ideas. While our online store is, is still down on the website, we've been selling a lot of t-shirts this summer. People are just emailing us, ohiovtheworld at gmail.com. Check out our socials, see those soft, stylish Ohio v. The World t-shirts. $20 free shipping, and for a limited time, they'll come with an Ohio v. The World bumper sticker as well. Shout out to Jerry Westner for listening to the show, and to my eye doctor, Dr. Jones, who let me know he's a listener as well. But email us, ohiovtheworld at gmail.com if you want a t-shirt, and we'll get it out to you. Thanks again to our friends at Evergreen Podcast. Check out evergreenpodcast.com. Find all our old shows on there and a bunch of other great history shows like Conflicted, a show that we really enjoy listening to. We're closing in on 100 episodes, so there's a lot of stuff there that you can listen to. We'll see you in a few weeks. Hope you're having a great summer. 
Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.